Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on your community radio station. I'm Justin Mogg. I'm a programmer here on the station. I do a show called Sustainability Now and I co-host this uh, great community conversation on Forward Radio every week with Doug Lowry, uh, who's uh, from our community partner, uh, the Source of Justice Network. And I'm excited to have Doug back in the virtual studio again. Welcome back, Doug. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's. I feel like the weather's turning. Like a lot of the, like vaccinations are happening. Like things are just moving in the right direction. Um, I'm excited uh, to talk about our topic this week. Uh, we're going to talk about education right here in Louisville. What's going on with JCPS? I'm super ignorant about all of this, so I am really excited to get an education myself about it. Uh, before we dive in and before I introduce our two special guests for the day, a quick station note. Uh, I want to let uh, listeners know who may have been uh, trying to catch our live stream on Thursday evening or Friday morning that we did have a, a small power loss in the studio and, and we lost our live stream. It's, amazingly, we did not lose our FM stream. So if you're listening on the radio, you still heard us. Uh, but that was just a little lesson for us uh, uh, that we uh, need to do better and, and we're going to invest in an uninterruptible an uninterruptible power supply so that that doesn't happen again and our live stream won't go down again. And the reason I'm telling everybody that is because you all are paying for it. This is a listener-sponsored community radio station. So when we need to make a little investment like that, uh, we need you all to step up and donate what you can at forwardradio.org to keep us on the air. Even with uh, surprise expenses like that, it really costs only about $20 a day to keep this great station running. And coming up next month is going to be our fourth anniversary of being on the air so you could give us a little early birthday gift at forwardradio.org today by clicking donate um so yeah let's let's uh, introduce our guests for the day and start talking about education we're really excited to have two folks who i mean i uh, these are gonna fantastic guests to talk about these issues we we are delighted to have in the virtual studio with us dr chris kolb and uh, current jcps board member uh proud graduate of atherton high right back in 94 Woo. that's correct long time ago <laughs> and a current jcps parent right yeah mm-hmm and uh, experienced educator himself, a community leader uh, who's been advocating for kids, uh, got his Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins and a professor of anthropology and urban studies at Spalding University right here in downtown, our neighbor right here from Forward Radio. Uh, and yeah, he currently right. teaches and mentors uh, hundreds of JCPS graduates, right, uh, coming through Spalding. So that it's great to have you, Chris, and I look forward to picking your brain like crazy here. We also have Aletha Fields back on Forward Radio. She was a guest on my show about six months ago, uh, a mother of two living children, uh, 22 years year veteran teacher at JCPS, uh, your teacher at Iroquois High, right, Aletha? Yes, uh, thank you all for having me today. Oh, so glad to have you. Uh, so if if I could be selfish, since I'm such an ignorant person about JCPS, uh, I imagine there must be other listeners out there like me who do not have children, who don't have their heads in the what's going on in JCPS world every day. People like me could little use a little like review. Could we talk about what's happened in the last year? And I know the whole show is going to talk about that to some degree, but could somebody give me just like an overview of what JCPS has done during the pandemic and what it's looking like now as we sort of emerge out of the pandemic how has it worked well i can start and then aletha probably could tell you a lot more about what's actually happening on the ground in the classrooms than i can 
but yeah, so right about a year ago, um, I think it was March 17th was maybe the last day we're in school in 2020 in person school, you know, uh, like every, every other entity in town, we thought we were going to be suspending in-person operations for, for a like few a weeks week. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I remember yeah. those and then days. We'd be back. <laughs> uh, of course it didn't work out that way. So at first it was, you know, we're going to be out for the, the rest of the year doing virtual education. And then, you know, it became apparent that it was not safe to go back in the fall. And so we've been doing uh, what's called NTI, non-traditional instruction for that period of time. You know, the, the online virtual instruction, I think, has gotten a lot better in the time that we've been doing it. It's gotten a lot more rigorous. It, it's, you know, no substitute for in-person education, right. I, I don't believe. But, but it has gotten a lot better. And then the last uh, few months or so has been taken up with debating uh, when and how and what manner we would be returning to some form of in-person instruction. So this was for all kids in all public schools in Jefferson County. And is this something, this NTI, is this something teachers like you, Aletha, had any experience with before? Or was this all brand new a year ago? Well, this was brand new for many teachers. It was uh, something we just had to come off the ground with and we had to, um, you know, learn to fly the plane while uh, it was in the air, as it were. And so uh, many of us, though, already um, exercised digital platforms inside of our classrooms. So it wasn't that hard of a shift for those of us who are already technologically adept and also keeping up with uh, what really engages students, which is not the sit and get, but um, something to uh, to uh, inspire them and to keep them interested uh, in their education and take more ownership. And um, so NTI was a jagged experience depending on where you were on the continuum of digital preparedness. And so it wasn't that hard of a shift for me, but I missed seeing my students. I missed seeing their faces. Oh, I missed sure. interpreting families. Um, March 13th was our last day, um, which is also the anniversary of Brianna Taylor's um, murder. So <clears throat> it was just uh, something that I'll, I'll never forget. I wonder if you all can tell us a little bit more about what students experience. We have a digital divide in our community, so not all students have easy access to non-traditional instruction, and lots of parents who have to proctor their kids in some fashion if they're learning at home, don't have that access either. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So again, uh, Aletha can tell you in much more interesting detail, I'm sure, what's actually happening. But, uh, you know, it was a big priority for the Board of Education to make sure that we were doing everything we could to get the technology in the hands of kids that need it to work with um, Metro government and some companies, local companies uh, to uh, create Wi-Fi hotspots uh, all over the city where we could um, to facilitate, um, you know, getting on the internet so kids wouldn't miss out on their, their instruction. So, you know, the, the digital divide of course is very real and not only that, but, you know, I, I mean, I can speak to this as a parent myself, you know, that the families with resources, you know, to be there with their kids, you know, as they're, they're doing NTI on the computer, you know, is a, is a big source of inequality as well. And not only that, which was beautifully said, of course, many of the students live in circumstances that they don't want other people to know about. So um, the digital divide uh, was also exacerbated by the fact that if a student comes off the microphone, uh, comes off mute, 
um, background information can be gathered. Um, if a student uh, shows their background or if you have a teacher that's um, just being inequitable and unkind to come off their cameras, you know, to come on the camera rather, uh, you know, there were things in the background um, that happened with one of my students and she never got back on the camera again. And I don't blame her. It was something her mother did. Um, and she was standing behind her knowing that the child was on the camera. And so you don't always have students who have um, situations that are conducive to um, digital learning. Um, one of my students her little brother, because of the spacing in their home, he literally sits right up under her. So when I'm having class and she's talking, um, you can hear the whole lesson and all of the interactions in the background. It's very hard to concentrate. Um, just me uh, trying to be a classroom leader, much less being the one who's sitting there trying to learn. So um, the digital divide is a very real deal. It's not something that people have made up. It's not something that um, people are throwing into the fray just to have something to talk about or to call somebody a racist or something like that. Um, as Dr. Kolb said last week during the school board meeting, the way some of the things have been handled, you could tell who had the privilege and who didn't um, in how things have been executed inside the district or have not been executed. So what do you do in that situation when you know there's a student who's really struggling with NTI? Are, is there any Anything that can be done in terms of additional assistance or other solutions or how have we just handled it? Are just people who are in these situations are just missing out on school? Well, that, that was one of the, I think, main points of contention that we discussed at the board meeting a week ago, week and a half ago, and why three of us did not feel comfortable voting for a return to in-person plan that as it was presented to us we believed and continue to believe uh, that it did not address precisely those sorts of issues that you point out. And really, frankly, you know, we were disappointed that, you know, it didn't really even seem to try to address mm -hmm. them very much. And, you know, that I, I've said this, you know, many times publicly, so it's nothing new. I mean, I think Dr. Polio has done a tremendous job since he's been superintendent in many, many ways. This is really the first time you know, that I've been really disappointed um, in a plan that he's brought us and, and in his leadership. And I've let him know that, you know, personally and publicly. So um, it's it's nothing new to him. But, you know, so one of the one of the things that we did at the end of the board meeting was we passed a, a motion um, calling on Dr. Polio, instructing Dr. Polio to bring us a plan to promote equity in our return to in-person instruction. Uh, and we'll be reviewing that uh, this coming Tuesday at the board meeting. Can you tell us a little bit more about why that plan wasn't inadequate? Yeah, help me understand that. Well, um, so one thing, and I should say too, that this is something that in the return to school guidelines from the CDC and from KDE, Kentucky Department of Edu Education, both entities specifically mentioned, you need to do specific outreach, you know, to families um, that are one are having maybe more of a hard time with virtual instruction. But then in in many cases, the families that are having the hardest time with virtual instruction are also the ones that are least likely to want to return to in-person instruction at the moment. 
So uh, across the board, you see about a 20 percentage point gap between uh, white families and African-American families. White families are about 70% want to return to in-person instruction right now. African-American families are about 50%. Hmm. And, I, you know, there's, of course, different ways to interpret that. But I think it speaks to, you know, a lack of trust to some extent in um, not only JCPS, but all big institutions in society. You know, we know that um, non-white populations are, are having worse outcomes with COVID. Uh, 19. Uh, you know, there's probably more multi-generational households with, you know, more high-risk individuals living in them. So, you know, we we were, those of us on the board that voted against the plan were pretty disappointed that the plan that was brought to us did not recognize those realities and did not really seek to overcome them. So one of the other issues out there is wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, returning to normal, not turning to normal, there seems to be a lot of discussion from teaching staff and other support staff about what that actually looks like. Um, what do you all think about people coming back into the building? Is it safe enough? Are there strategies in place? Are there resources? It, when, when students do return to in-person instruction, does, do you feel like the schools have a, a safety plan for staff and students and families. We do have a safety plans. We have a uh, reopening committee. It's called the CRC that was negotiated between Jefferson County Teachers Association, the Teachers Union, uh, and Jefferson County uh, Public Schools. So the CRC uh, has uh, three teacher leaders and three administrators in my building. And uh, we talk about all of the issues that teachers are raising so that those things can be addressed inside of the building. Um, and then there's a district CRC. So that is um, district level, um, the assistant superintendent and, and um, the uh, president of the teachers union and folks like that. So um, at the district level, things are being handled. These are like oversight committees so that the issues that are arising right now before we're even in person are able to be addressed or redressed. And then once we get into uh, the buildings, then uh, as things unfold little by little, and you know that they will, there's no way to prepare for everything that's going to come up when we return in person. Um, this, These CRCs are the ones that will bring those issues to administrators and administrators have to address them. And then if they don't, then it goes to the district CRC. Um, but the safety plan, for instance, that we have at Iroquois is very thorough. Um, it follows the CDC guidelines all the way through. Fortunately, we have a very strong administration who uh, wants to do the right thing by kids and wants to keep kids and staff safe. Um, they're even putting themselves more on the front line with them, um, you know, being the ones to take the temperatures and things like that so that the kids are more in their faces than they are in ours. Um, so the safety plans are uh, in place in many schools. And uh, I'm hopeful that um, the better we prepare, the better we'll be prepared for when students do return. What about student transportation and COVID-19 precautions? Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that was one of the, the main concerns that I had and continue to have. Up until a few weeks ago, I was told that we could have as many as 66 students on a bus, what? which would be three to a seat in every seat. What? Um, that was precisely my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think I, I think I called it insane during a school board meeting. 
since then, most, you know, most in people the... don't think of super spreader events being bright yellow, <laughs> bright and yellow, yeah. stopping at every house yeah. in Florida, right? Yeah, well, I guess they're easy to spot at least if they're bright yellow. <laughs> Special but... viral delivery. Yeah. The um, <laughs> so the plan that Dr. Polio brought to us, there were we had gotten it down to I think sixty or seventy bus runs where the max was forty-four students. So that was certainly progress, but even with that, I mean, there's clearly a, a complete inability to, to distance to a safe level. And many days you're going to have to have the windows closed, so it's practically an indoor environment. Um, you know, this is something that you know the the guidelines coming out of Kentucky Department of Education, which are I guess legally the things that we have to follow, even though they they go against CDC guidelines in a number of areas. Um, on student transportation, the KDE guidelines say you know compromises had to be made because it just wasn't realistic to get districts to buy more buses or, you know, do X or Y. And that's true. It's, it's not realistic, <laughs> but, but, you know, when we say compromise, I mean, to me that what we're compromising is the health and safety of, you know, bus drivers and, and other people, uh, you know, not, not, not ourselves. So it's, it, you know, I had a real issue with that and I, I continue to have an issue with it. And then finally, one of the things that Kentucky department of education says is every bus needs to have a bus monitor well, we're currently about a hundred bus drivers short, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so, so we're not going to have bus monitors on, on very many buses to be able to do things like, you know, make sure that mask wearing is, is going on and, and to be able to take kids temperatures and things like that. Can I back up just a step? This is a plan to reopen when? Um, so March uh, 17th, I believe, is really? the first day for K through two. Um, I, I might be getting some of the details slightly wrong, but but the day is right. And then the next day is three through five. And then after that, we go to middle schools and high schools. But, uh, you know, just so everybody knows and probably everybody knows by this point, but all of our students uh, middle, high, and elementary, everybody is going to be on a hybrid plan now where they're in school two days a week uh, and then doing virtual instruction three days a week. For those that continue to want uh, to do in-person, you still have the option to do full virtual learning if you would like. And Aletha, do you think this is going to make a huge difference in, in kids' lives? Is this a good idea to, to reopen, you think? I mean, there's the safety question, obviously, but <laughs> that that's almost a hard one to answer given so many variables. I mean, just in terms of the, the, the kids' experience and education, what do you think this plan will do? It's not a good idea to reopen right now. Um, it's just not safe enough. So even uh, if children leave their homes and, and they are COVID-19 free, by the time they get on the school bus, um, two, three to a seat, um, windows closed and all of that kind of a thing, it's a disaster uh, waiting to happen in that way. And I don't think that um, people were um, as honest as they needed to be uh, on the school board, um, not Dr. Cole, because he's, he's very upfront about what the issues are. And so I'm, I'm always delighted to hear what he has to say. Um, our students um, are not prepared for what school is going to have to look like when they return. Um, for instance, um, our cafeteria no longer has tables and stools. It's desks in there. We have a seating chart. We have um, hallways where you have to go one way, um, you know, when you're um, leaving and one way when you're coming and the uh, arrival and departure plans and things like that. Every school has to have these 
these pieces in place. So Iroquois isn't the exception, but we do have an exceptional plan. Um, at the same time, it's not going to be school as normal. It's not going to be what students think it's going to be. Um, they're not going to be with all of their friends, for instance, because all of their friends on the other end of the alphabet won't be in school until Thursday and Friday, and they may be in school on Monday and Tuesday. Um, also, um, you know, where students get the chance to be um, children and socialize during lunch, those things will not happen. Uh, and so it's not going to be school as usual. My other concern is the fact that we're back in time for testing. Um, I don't care what anybody says. That whole thing was, uh, was a, a big box testing uh, situation and uh, they're meeting the needs of uh, Pearson who's on the stock market. So I have an issue with that, that students will come back on a hybrid schedule and then they will be slammed into um, standardized testing. Um, and there's no standardized student, this is standardized testing uh, <laughs> whose results won't even count. So what is the point? Um, so it's, it boils down to money. Disappointing and also not surprising. So what is the hope for uh, slowing this reopening plan down? Is there is it inevitable at this point? Uh, is there still a role for the public to weigh in? Where are we at on that? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it's almost surely going to occur in some way, shape or form. And, and you know, that's why you've seen some of us on the board turn our attention to trying to make it as equitable and as, as safe as possible. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but, but there's always, you know, time to weigh in and I, you know, I can tell you for sure that school board members and the superintendent, you know, do get everybody's emails and, <laughs> you know, we usually do read them at least, even if we don't have time to respond to everyone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage the the public uh, to, to weigh in, you know, and it, it, one of the things that really, you know, bothers me in addition to the testing uh, aspect, which, you know, we, we claimed that we were surprised that the Biden administration didn't waive that for districts, but I, I don't know why anybody is surprised. I mean, it, as there's powerful interests, as Ms. Fields indicated, you know, behind those sorts of things. In fact, you know, uh, just today, uh, there's a Diane Ravitch, who was a former uh, education uh, official in the Bush administration, uh, had a, a post about how the the Gates um, Foundation and the Walton Family Foundation are huge funders of most of the people that are pushing for standardized testing to still occur this year. Um, so uh, yeah, and then finally, the the thing that really really bothers me. Well, there's a lot that really bothers me, but this really bothers me is that when we go back, tens of thousands of kids are going to have a completely different teacher than they've had up to this point in the year, mm. because, you know, they may be staying virtual, but their teacher is having to go back and teach in person. So I, you know, it's just the, it's the worst time uh, in the school year to tear, you know, tens of thousands of kids away from their teachers. It's the worst time in our society, you know, when there's so much uncertainty, there's so much anxiety, there's so much stress. Uh, that kids are already going through. Now we're going to give them a completely new teacher. You know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we could be setting ourselves up for some pretty, pretty bad instructional outcomes for the last part of the year. Could you all say something about parents? Um, in some ways, parents end up being the consumers of education. And most of the parents I know are exhausted from NTI, but they're even more horrified at this hybrid schedule because they're saying, you know, I've already figured out how, how to work if I work or manage childcare or whatever. This has just 
upset everybody's apple card. So what is your sense of what parents think? And what do you all think about its impact on getting us all back to normal as far as the economy is concerned? <laughs> well, I think uh, we've got parents on every, every point of the spectrum. Um, some who definitely want their children to stay home, but like Dr. Kolb said, um, you know, those those are often our, our more privileged students in their, um, you know, privileged situations because their families can manage that and handle that. Um, and then we have folks who um, may still have some privilege, but still want their children to return to school. Like I said earlier, the issue is it's not going to be school as normal. I understand the parent dilemma. Um, I, I get that piece. I understand them. Uh, they're wanting their children to come back into school. I understand they're wanting some normalcy. Um, it's not going to be normal. There's nothing normal about this time that we're in. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> nothing is normal um, as we knew it, and nothing is ever going to return back to normal. It will always be different from this point forward. So I understand where parents are coming from. I feel that. Um, I put myself in their shoes. If my children were uh, young, my children are adults now, but if they were younger and living with me, it would have been a struggle in here to have three people, two children trying to work on uh, NTI um, in a single parent household um, and one parent trying to teach as well as not having enough technology, which I would not have been able to afford as a single parent, um, notwithstanding the fact of trying to afford the internet, which is a luxury uh, for uh, many families and trying to get a hotspot and all of that kind of a thing, if there were enough, there is all sorts of, of uh, motion in the dilemma world with this that has been created by how this has rolled out. Um, and I don't have any blame on any group or any one particular person for how this has rolled out because this is brand new for all of us. And I think the best of intentions have gone forward, even though some of them have been short-sighted uh, in some obvious ways. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question that the hybrid plan, especially at the elementary level, is not ideal. And if it was just a matter of, you know, what is best for instruction and what's best for convenience of the public, then yeah, I mean, the, the, the five-day-a-week plan is the way to go. But there's just absolutely no way that, you know, I was going to vote to put 20 to 25 kids in a classroom with a teacher. I mean, that's, you know, completely unsafe. It's not, you know, we, we already expect teachers to, you know, go above and beyond and sacrifice, you know, so much for their students. It's not really fair to ask them to sacrifice, you know, the health and, uh, and safety of themselves and their families, even though they're vaccinated, you know, people can still transmit it to others in the community, even if you're vaccinated. So I, I think if that, if, if we had not um, brought forward the possibility of, I, I feel pretty confident that the whole plan uh, would have been voted down at, at the board level because enough of us just were not going to put 25 kids in a class with, um, with a teacher. Can you say a little bit about building equity? You know, one of the arguments for not passing this tax increase for this public schools, for this building fund was the whole idea, why would you raise taxes in the middle of this great economic crisis that's caused by this pandemic? Can you say a little bit more about the buildings that students are returning to? Because one of the issues is not everybody's building is a fancy new building. In fact, we have lots of old buildings that really are not suitable for instruction. 
Yeah, so I can start and then uh, Ms. Fields, you know, can probably tell you about her specific building and, and some interesting detail. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the um, two things about, you know, why are we doing that in the middle of pandemic? Well, I mean, the, the best time to do it would have been uh, five or 10 years ago. And that's when we needed to do it. And unfortunately, you know, the Board of Education's uh, at, at those times, did not do it. Uh, we've been seeing uh, declining funding at the state level, which is where the vast majority of education funding comes from, consistently since 2008. So we've we've lost about 16% uh, of our state funding uh, since 2008. Um, so every year, local taxpayers in Louisville are having to pick up a bigger and bigger share. Uh, but you know, because of uh, the dynamics of uh, and legal mechanisms and how education is funded in Kentucky, that I won't bore you with at the moment, um, we're really limited in how much local revenue we can raise uh, on a yearly basis, unless we do something like we did last year, which is to to pass a you know a, a sizable tax increase. So, um, and and then the other thing is, we know that when kids do return to in-person instruction. Uh, the needs are going to be greater and and the needs were already, you know, incredibly significant before the pandemic. And a lot of our, our kids are going to have even even larger needs that we have to meet uh, and that, you know, that costs money to do. So if we want to be able to give the kids uh, the services they need so that they're in a position to um, get a good education, then we just had no choice but to try to find some additional funding. Aletha, do you want to share a, a little bit of the story about Iroquois anyway? <laughs> well, sure. Um, our building is old. Uh, the newest uh, annex to the building was built uh, in 1994. Um, and so that's the newest part of it. Okay. Um, but the building itself is, is old. The ventilation system was replaced in the early 2000s and um, it's mediocre at best and it's the, you know, the bidding process and who gets what. And um, so, you know, there's just uh, really no way around some of these pieces. We were told uh, by somebody at the district level that uh, buildings had been visited for the um, express purpose of making sure that there's proper ventilation in problematic areas. But if windows don't open now, yeah. what way to make them open in less than two weeks? Yeah. Um, I'm to figure this out of um, whose kids uh, deserve to be treated like that, whose kids don't deserve um, fresh air, whose kids don't deserve up-to-date uh, facilities. I mean, Shawnee's third floor has been condemned since the 80s. But um, now all of a sudden, mm. like, oh, well, let's fix that. Um, because if we don't, then we're going to be called what we've been all along. Um, these facilities are not um, uh, are not new. They are not up to par. And like Dr. Kolb said, um, this should have been done long ago. Um, but, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda. <laughs> what, are we, what are we going to do? What, what are we really going to do? We're gathered, we're gathered around the... I think the important thing is the ventilation, and we can come back to yeah. that. Yeah. I just want to quickly reintroduce everybody. Uh, we're gathered around the microphones here today on Truth to Power Happy Hour at the end of another work week to discuss uh, important events and topics of the day. And I'm really excited that today we're focusing on K-12 through education, public education right here in 
Louisville and the foundation of our democracy, right? <laughs> uh, such an important uh, part of American life is having, uh, you know, free public education that is tragically unequitable in these days. And uh, the pandemic has only exacerbated that. And those are the kinds of issues we're talking about today here on Truth to Power. I'm Justin Mogg. Doug Lowry is co-hosting with me. And our special guests on the virtual studio today are Aletha Fields, a mother and a 22-year veteran of JCPS teaching at Iroquois High, and Dr. Chris Call, the current JCPS board member, a graduate of Atherton, and a, a, a professor of anthropology and urban studies at Spalding University today. Um, I'd love to talk more about physical plant too, but um, you know, one of the things that popped into my head when I imagined being a student suddenly switching to uh, virtual uh, learning is that school is about so much more than just class. And and uh, of course, there's the, like being with your friends. You mentioned that over lunch and that kind of thing. But I'm also thinking about you know, it, for for a lot of kids, it's access to a meal, <laughs> uh, and for a lot of kids, it's access to some of the only en enrichment that they get in their lives. And what what made high school for me was doing theater after the school day, right? <laughs> um, so, what has been the impact uh, on those kinds of extracurriculars, if you will, other things about school that are so important, or things I haven't even mentioned that you, you all would know, uh, and, and w what's going to happen when we reopen in a few weeks to those kinds of things? Well, we have one of the bright spots is that we have been able to provide, um, I, I, I think it's literally millions of meals to students and families since the pandemic started. The whole way that food services is funded is is kind of separate from other education funding. It's funded through the federal government. So, um, but, you know, of course, having said that, it, it hasn't been, I'm sure, as um, efficient as it would be if kids were getting it at school. So we've tried to, to make up for that where we can. Uh, my, my sense is that we've done a pretty good job uh, with that. But the enrichment activities you mentioned, I mean, one of the things that really got under my skin and continues to, and I say this as somebody that really likes sports, but everybody, even people that say, you know, you can go back to school safely, medical professionals that tell us that, uh, they say that indoor sports at the at the moment are one of the most high risk activities that mm -hmm. you can engage in, and yet you know JCPS is going ahead with in, uh, with indoor uh, sports. Wow. Um, and we've had a lot of cases uh, and quarantines. I think we've had over 250 kids had, have to quarantine um, because of uh, cases associated with athletics. And but yet when um, if it comes to like an after school club or something, we're, we're still making people do those sorts of things virtually, more or less. So, you know, even if it's much safer than than playing basketball or, or something. So, you know, again, this to me, this speaks to a larger kind of lack of consistency and kind of lack of principled decision making um, in what we've been doing and just sort of decision making out of. Uh, expedient, you know, political expediency or convenience or pressure, you know, who's putting pressure on, on us. Um, so, you know, that's a, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it, there's a lot of kids are going to be missing out on a lot of enrichment activities. So what about kids who learn differently? So if a child has an IEP, learns differently, is, is not a middle of the bell curve kind of kid, how are we meeting the needs of kids who learn differently, have an IEP, either because they're especially gifted or because they have some type of learning difference. Many of our students 
are still getting their required minutes uh, and the resources that they need uh, to be as successful as possible. But uh, with with MTI, uh, that that is not panning out uh, equitably at all. Um, even though the availability is there for things to happen, if we can't get students, you know, on in the classroom, in the Google Classrooms, if we can't get them, you know, to participate in the Google Meets or what have you, um, they're not going to get the services that they deserve. And many of them, especially the younger ones, don't know how to advocate for themselves. And so they don't even know how to ask for what they need because they don't yet have the ability oftentimes to identify what their needs are. So it's really um, unfortunate for our um, ECE students who are really um, already struggling in many ways, academically, maybe even socially, behaviorally. Um, so uh, I feel uh, very, very um, sorrowful in my heart that um, they're experiencing what they are right now, um, which is not equitable at all. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, by the way, this whole conversation is just depressing me uh, even <laughs> further, by the way, but the, uh, I mean, well, it, but it is a very, you know, that's the reality that we're, yeah, you're supposed to have a drink yeah, in your exactly. hand. That's, I mean, that's the reality that we're in right now, though. It's, it's, you know, in my mind, a very depressing reality where lots of people are struggling and suffering and our society does not seem all too interested in, in helping people out, but that's a personal opinion. Um, so, uh, you know, we, JCPS, like any district, really struggles to do a good job um, providing um, ECE kids what they need in, on a regular <laughs> regular day, let alone during the pandemic. We have, you know, come light years from where we were from when I first got on the board, I, I think anyway. I mean, my impression is um, that was one of the main areas that the state identified as a deficiency in JCPS when they um, you know, tried to take over the district. And honestly, I, I did not disagree all that much with what the state said about, about us at, at, in that, uh, at that part. I, you know, we've invested a lot uh, in ECE since then um, in personnel to, you know, make the process go more smoothly, we hope, at the school level to make sure that, you know, if parents uh, or students don't believe that that they're getting their legally um, uh, the the education and services they have a legal right to that you know we have a process in place to address that um, that process I don't think was very uh, w was very good you know up until the last three or four years and, I, and honestly I don't know how good it is now I mean we've tried to make it better but um, it's you know could still be lacking in certain areas um, but that's another area where you know to get back to the funding question the federal government. Uh, is supposed to fund IDEA, you know, at a certain level, and they've only provided, I think, about 40% of the funding that they said they were going to provide when they put all of these requirements on the district, uh, on school districts to provide services. So I'm all for the requirements. I mean, we should be obligated to provide every kid what they need to get a good education, but then, you know, the, the federal government has not fulfilled their promise to, to fund uh, local school districts in that way. You mentioned earlier about how hard it is to find bus drivers. So most people don't realize that in addition to teachers, which are certified staff, you have all kinds of other people who make schools go. So what has been the impact on lunch ladies, um, hall monitor, bus monitor, you know, non-certified staff like teacher's assistants, cafeteria workers, custodial staff? Do what's happened to those people during the pandemic? Did they get paid? Did they get laid off? What What's the deal there? Yeah, I've been wondering that too. 
Um, many of them are unionized, uh, so that's a good thing. And uh, the the talent was redistributed in in May. So you know we we had, for instance, security guards who were helping um, custodial staff do particular things. Security guards. Um, helping us to reach out to students. Um, the lunch staff has, uh, from my knowledge, uh, remained the same uh, in, in regards to um, continuing to work and be paid, um, but they have, some of them, their talent has been redistributed in places of need. So for instance, at my school, um, a, a, a manager of another cafeteria that was not a feeding site came over to our school uh, to help support what we were doing. And now that we're about to go back to school, then you know they'll, they'll go back to their original work sites. Um, I wonder if you all know, or if there's a plan to deal with the, the people that we assume are going to become newly houseless, my understanding is there's 6,000 evictions waiting in the court. They're already, JCPS already has a huge number of houseless students or nearly houseless students who are living with a grandparent or somebody else. Has there been any, any attempt to assess the impact of that? And what's the plan when you're dealing in the middle of a pandemic with kids who don't even have a house to live in? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest concerns I have um, is, you know, houseless, but then just in general, um, students and families that are suffering economically uh, from the consequences of the pandemic. I mean, one of the, you know, the, the 2008 recession, there are large parts of the city and the country, but, you know, just talking about Louisville, there are large parts of the city that have never even really begun to recover yeah. from the recession in 2008. Um, and, you know, if you look at the numbers of houseless students in JCPS through the years, I mean, you see that reflected very clearly. Um, been a, a, an extreme increase, you know, over the last um, 12 years. Uh, so, you know, it's probably going to go up again. I mean, it's, there's, you know, all the research in the world that, you know, says very much what you would expect about uh, students in that position, that they're probably not going to do great in school if they're worrying about, you know, where they're going to sleep that night. So it's a tremendous challenge. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, honestly, I, we have not even really talked about at the board level. And that's, you know, not necessarily because there's a lack of interest. It's just been, you know, trying to keep things flowing one day after the other. Um, but but we really need to. Um, you know, we have 200, I think there's around 250 students in JCPS every single day that change schools. Um, that's a huge amount of transience, you know, amongst uh, our students, a lot of it because of housing and economic situations. And again, there's all sorts of research about how um, that, that degree of tra transience is bad for those students who have to move, but, but bad for, you know, the schools that they come from and go to uh, as well. I wonder if we can talk about some things that are going on in the legislature. If you could wave a magic wand and say, Kentucky State Legislature, here's the one thing can, uh, Jefferson County Public Schools needs from the legislature, what would that be? One thing we need from them is to not mandate that we return in person uh, and let each district say for themselves what is best for their students and what is best for um, the students' needs. Yeah, I, I would just one word money. <laughs> Fund education. I mean, 
you know, everybody in Frankfurt loves to talk about education, how much they care about education, you know, their concern about education. You know, I, I, I follow, I don't know if you saw uh, Senator from Lexington, Reggie uh, Thomas, I think his name is, who said, you know, he's African-American Senator who said he was tickled to hear all this concern about the the achievement gap, you know, in, in uh, the concerns about kids going back to in-person instruction because the legislature really hasn't really shown much uh, concern for that, you know, in the past. Um, so, I mean, it, at the end of the day, you know, the legislature's job, and this is in the Kentucky Constitution, you know, is to uh, fund education so that local school districts can can uh, provide that. I mean, Kentucky, you know, there's been talk. I mean, a lot of people, you know, my age and, and older uh, remember uh, when CARA was passed back around 1990, Kentucky Education Reform Act, and you know what a big difference that made for especially um, a lot of the poorer school districts, you know, in, in rural parts of the state. Um, and the reason that that happened was because the legislature had essentially let uh, education fall into um, disrepair, you know, throughout the state. And you know, there's a lot of people that are saying that uh, we were getting back to those levels uh, now, and it may be time, you know, for another sort of uh, lawsuit against the state legislature to say you're not fulfilling your constitutionally mandated. Uh, duty to uh, equitably and uh, sufficiently fund education in Kentucky. So that's what we want from the legislature, but I haven't heard anything like that. Instead, the legislature, in fact, I haven't heard a damn thing about the budget. It's supposed to be a short legislative session where our focus is on the budget. Boy, I'm hearing about a lot of crappy bills that got nothing to do with helping people. I haven't heard a damn thing about the budget. What are they talking about in terms of schools in Frankfurt right now? Nothing. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, other than government, you know, we're passing this stimulus bill. Nothing stimulates future economy like education. Right. We know that's true. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. a K through twelve education, a college education, or postgraduate degree, all of those things. And I wonder if y'all have opinions about student loans. As you know, one of the big drags on, on the on the economic outlook for people who are maybe 40 and under is their student debt. I wonder if you'll have opinions about that. Well, I mean, I just, you know, I, I think that we're now, and we could do, you know, hours on this topic alone, because now we're into the realm of where people's political ideology takes over as opposed to <laughs> you know, looking at what's actually good for people. I mean, you know, a, a large percentage of our state legislators and, you know, others throughout the, the, the United States have convinced themselves that uh, any public institution is bad, any government spending is bad. Uh, public education is, of course, a, a huge expenditure, so it's been a target. You know, they don't like teachers unions because unions have built the power to be able to push back and they don't like it when people can say, no, you're, we're not just going to blindly do what you tell us to do. We're going to have some say in it. Um, so, I mean, frankly, I think that, you know, I, it, at this point, you know, I don't, I don't know how it's ever going to get better uh, at the state level for, for JCPS. I mean, I think it's just going to be more of the same year after year, unless something uh, big changes, which I don't, you know, see happening. What about the business community? I know David Jones had some had done some work to try and bring some resources. Um, UofL is a good example. It sits on a huge endowment. There are other philanthropies of incredible wealth and incredible size. Are there plans to 
shake some of those trees and maybe deliver some resources, especially in areas where we know there's lack of equity, especially for uh, black students, for Hispanic students, ESL students, students who learn differently. Well, I, I feel like I'm talking too much. So jump in, uh, Ms. Fields, if you, if you like, but not really. I mean, the, the issue with that tends to be, if you look nationally, that when people bring money to the table, they expect to have a certain amount of influence. And that's just not the way it's going to work in JCPS. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, we have a democratically elected school board mm -hmm. that um, determines, um, you know, with our partners, uh, you know, in the teachers and, and other uh, other JCPS employees, you know, and families, we, we determine how things go. Uh, we don't let uh, money dictate, you know, what's going to happen. Um, and if you look at a lot of the you know, privatization efforts that have been supported, you know, charter schools and other private education privatization efforts. I mean, they've all been um, either huge failures or basically done no better in their results than traditional, you know, public education has done. And that's with being able to, you know, cherry pick their students. So, um, you know, th that whole education kind of quote unquote reform uh movement has failed. But unfortunately, you know, the the people that are pushing it have a lot of money uh, uh, to, to push with. And so they, you know, they can continue trying to, you know, sell the snake oil, uh, as it were. Um, you know, it's it, it school funding is very, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But it, at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. You know, it's there's a small percentage that comes from the federal government for things like students with disabilities and Title I uh, schools, schools with lots of kids in poverty, uh, neither of which they fund uh, where they're supposed to fund it. Uh, vast majority of state funding, again, uh, where we are seeing nothing but declines in state funding. And then there's a local component um, that uh, local taxpayers bring to the table. And that part is going up and up and up because the other parts are, are uh, going down. We're, we're getting towards the end of our show and our time together. So we're going to need to wrap soon, but I, and I, and I, it doesn't sound like the, the local money well-heeled folks are stepping up to, but I do want to end on some positive notes and talk about some maybe stories of how the community has uh, stepped up to support schools. But before we get to that, I did want to circle back if we could quickly to the, the issue that you all brought up earlier about the digital divide and how that has really been brought in focus by the, the pandemic, you know, our city has talked about providing free public Wi-Fi many times over the years, and it doesn't seem to get anywhere. Do you all feel like that kind of a solution should be prioritized by our city? Should most definitely be prioritized. It's uh, they can broker a deal. Um, they're all politicians. They know what to do. They know how to how the money flows and uh, which way to make it move. So they need to move that stuff around. Um, and um, make this happen so that our um, society as a whole uh, can benefit strongly. But in times like these, and who knows if this is the last time a pandemic will hit, we don't know what's coming down the pike. And so um, we ought not have these same issues should something like this, of this magnitude happen again. Uh, we ought to have uh, something that the city, you know, Chicago did it. Um, Chicago did it and they're much larger than we are. We can do it too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a 
as everybody knows, I mean, access to Wi-Fi is uh, a necessity for life these days. I mean, you, you literally just can't function either as a student, parent, or any anybody without it. So when something is that much of a necessity to life, then yeah, I think it's the uh, local government's job to step up and, and make sure that people have access to it. And one of the things that you, you, you know, you you can know this, but, you know, until you kind of see it for yourself, it, it might not really hit home. But when you're in a position like I am, you know, elected school board member, you know, in charge of lots of money and then, you know, working with partners in the city that have that are in charge of lots of money, there is always money available when you want to find it. You know, there, and that's not to say that there's this unlimited pot of money, but it's just a question of priorities. And if people care enough about something that needs money, they find it. I mean, at the city level, you know, it seems like we've never had any problem finding money to expand, you know, our police force or our jails or, you know, criminal justice system. Uh, while a lot of other things, a lot of other programs have been have been cut. So, you know, I, I hope that nobody ever accepts the excuse from a public official, uh, including me, that we just don't have the money. When people say that we just don't have the money, what they mean is I don't care enough about what you're talking about to find the money. So I think we should bet on the future and maybe shame Churchill Downs into working on being a corporate leader since they don't pay any taxes and they're they're the signature business in our community. They can pay for Wi-Fi. When I go around talking to people in Louisville, that is the one issue. Um, I work for a big telecom and some of our partners want to do food relief work. I mean, that was one of the things they proposed. And I said, well, People want to eat, but they also need a cell phone and they need Wi-Fi at their house. You know, like, so now tell me what kind of food you want. So I want to try to wrap up with uh, maybe some stories from the pandemic of, of positive things that have taken place. Uh, I, I know that there have been examples of the community coming together to support schools, either in general or specific schools and, and kids. Um, what have you all seen during this past year that maybe maybe can help get Chris out of his uh, funk that we've gotten him into over the past hour? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll share a story. I had a, uh, a a beautiful new component in my classroom teaching this year because more of my ESL students are participating than ever before. And oh, wow. my English language learners are taking risks because they're not physically in a room of all uh, native English speakers are mostly native English speakers. And so many of them are stepping up and stepping out and taking risks and participating at levels that I have not seen before. And this is so refreshing. It is so good. And my, one of my favorite words to describe is just juicy. It's just, kids <laughs> are like really showing out and, um, you know, taking risks, just putting it out there, practicing uh, their English. Uh, one of them, she decided to read the longest passage, which had to be about a page and a half, um, just took, took the time to do it and um, stopped and said this word, you know, and so we would uh, practice the word together, then she would keep on reading. And so it has been absolutely beautiful watching these new revelations take place in ways that they may have never happened had we been in person. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't compete with that at all. So I, I'm not, I don't know if I should even try because, uh, <laughs> you know. The most positive thing I've heard through this whole pandemic from about JCPS is the food work. 
There yeah. are people who have the most, they, they, sub, several people have said, that's the first time I've been to a school in 10 or 15 years. And people have said fantastically positive things about that. They're happy about schools. They, to me, you know, we a lot of us spend a lot of time advocating for public education. There are lots of folks who don't have kids in school, but that did more. There were more posts on social media, more positive comments from real life people who said, "I would not have made it this week if I had not been able to get food from Jefferson County Public Schools." So, I think there that's a brilliant government outpost. You know, uh, public schools are a great institution. There's one in every neighborhood. Yeah, and that that story about people coming to the rescue with the food insecurity issues is is spread. It's beyond the schools too. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement really led to some amazing, uh, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, some amazing things such as Feed the West, and you know, we know Hip Hop Cares has popped up, Feed Louisville. Like, there's these wonderful organizations that have really stepped up on that front. Little free food pantries. There are all kinds of people doing this mutual aid work. and it's exciting that that we have that community resiliency. I hope that spills over into public education. You know, it takes a village to educate children. The, the biggest determinant of, of outcome for a student is how much focused adult attention they get. And there are lots of kids out there that, that need that. And we can do that. Well, we're near, nearly out of our time. Any last things anybody wanted to chip in? That we, Anything we didn't touch on you, you just want to make sure we, we share with our listeners in our last few minutes? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I'll just say, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me on. I don't think oh, I've said that yet. I appreciate the invitation and it's uh, always good to talk about these issues and educate people about uh, all the different aspects um, or hopefully educate people about all the different stuff that public schools deal with. I mean, I, I would just say that, you know, to, to your all's point, every, the three of you, you know, that have been talking about, you know, find a way to support public education, you know, in whatever way you can, Um, you know, whether that's supporting, you know, increased funding or whether it's going to volunteer or uh, at a school, you know, or just visit a school, you know, anybody can visit a school and see what's going on. I mean, one of the things that does really cheer me up um, is when uh, I see just the stuff that kids are doing in school. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 45, so I'm not ancient, but it's been a while since I've been yeah. <laughs> a public school student myself. And the things that kids are doing nowadays just blow away what, what yeah. we were doing, you know, 25, 30 years ago in schools. It's so much more impressive. It's so much more research-based um, and um, so much more deep learning going on. So I hope that that people can uh, get out there and, and um, you know, just, you don't have to volunteer every day or something like that, but make some form of contact with the public school in your neighborhood and see what you can do to support it. That is a fantastic note to end on. I want to thank our guests so much for joining us this week on Truth to Power. You just heard Dr. Chris Kolb, current JCPS board member and professor at Spalding University. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. And thank you, Aletha Fields, a mom and a 22-year veteran teacher in JCPS down at Iroquois High School. Oh, boy, I wish you, all I can say is the best of luck with reopening. I mean, I know it's not going to go well, but I, I hope you all get through it okay. (laughs) we got your back i guess (laughs) now thanks so much for having us thank you all for being here thanks so much for having us all righty and that's all the time we have for today here on truth to power thanks you so much and uh, we will be back in your ears again in one week's time my friends be well